All right. Welcome to another episode of Cannon Calls. This week, I had the absolute pleasure of talking with Yuri Brito, who is a pastor of Providence Church in Florida. He is a husband, a father, an author, and founder of Kyperian Commentary. You can find that on Twitter, Kype.com, or at Kyperian.com. You can find out more from him there. This episode is about the life and the work of the theologian James B. Jordan. As you'll learn in the episode, Jordan is alive and he is in Texas. And it would have been an honor to interview he himself about his life and work, but I do know with his health, uh, it wasn't going to be a possibility. So I want to thank Pastor Brito for doing us the honor. One book from the Canon Shelf that you should go get for sure after listening to this interview is Primeval Saints, Studies in the Patriarchs of Genesis by James Jordan himself. I am positive that you've never heard Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob talked about in this way. So go get that today at canonpress.com. And without further ado, meet Pastor Yuri Brito. special guest, Yuri Brito, who is a pastor in the CREC. Is it Providence Church, Yuri? That's right, Jake. That's right. Awesome. And where in Florida are you? So I'm in the panhandle of Florida, right uh, next door to Mobile, Alabama. Sometimes they refer to Pensacola as uh, Lower Alabama. We have uh, <laughs> quite a bit of the influence of uh, our Southern friends. I love it. So would you say you're a different breed of Floridian? A hundred percent. Yeah. We, uh, in comparison to, uh, central and South Florida, we are a different country altogether. I can imagine. So, so thank you, man, for coming on today. I've been wanting to do an episode on the, the person and the theology of James B. Jordan. And I talked to several people that I trust on the, on the subject of Jim Jordan. And they said over and over, Yuri Brito is the guy to go to. So here you are. Thank you so much, man, for taking the time. My absolute pleasure, Jake. It would probably be a disservice to my audience. I'm sure a lot of people do know who he is that listen to this podcast, but let's just assume they don't know who that guy is from, from Phil. So who is Jim Jordan? You know, that would also be, that would be a fair assessment. Uh, I think that people who have most loved Jim over the years would probably say, you know, even people like Rusty Reno from First things would say that uh, Jim is not well known. If you go to the Evangelical Theological Society, which is a an annual gathering of the greatest theologians alive today, very few people would know of Jim Jordan. He is somebody that is respected by a, a small group of very, very enthusiastic uh, disciples and lovers of his work. And uh, Jim is, you know, Jim was born not to from here. He was born in Athens, Georgia. And um, later on, he uh, had the chance to go to the University of Georgia. He was a military historian, which is one of the coolest things about him. We had a lot of time to talk about it. A military historian in the Air Force. And then he began his theological journey by uh, attending Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson. And then from there, he went to Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, which is probably the most well-known Reform Seminary in the country, right, and that's where he gained a lot of his um, readership, and he gained a, a lot of his uh, ability to interact with some of those voices that were there, including some well-known names like John Frame, for example. And so Jim kind of had a very unique history 
uh, as a historian and as a theologian. And he combined those two features really, really in amazing fashion in his work later on. Wow, I didn't know about the uh, the military historian. That that's fascinating. So, did you mention the years there that he was at school? I think he was in uh, RTS Jackson the seventies because in those days, uh, Greg Bonson, which is a, a very well known name in um, apologetics, uh, Greg was a disciple of Van Til, and Greg in those days was teaching at RTS, which has always led me to great jealousy. I kind of wish I'd lived during those days. <laughs> but uh, Greg, who was younger than Jim a few years, was actually Jim's teacher. And so just for the sake of uh, more context, Jake, think about this. It was in those days in the same classroom, you had guys like Steve Wilkins, Gary DeMar, David Shilton, James B. Jordan being taught by the great Greg Bonson, all in the same community, living together, attending the same church, which was uh, St. Paul's in, uh, in Jackson, Mississippi. And after that time, Jim made his way to uh, Westminster Seminary and found himself in the middle of another great controversy, which is for another podcast, but that was the <laughs> Norman Shepherd controversy. And Jim always found himself in these very precarious moments, and he always had some amazing contributions to uh, those discussions. Yeah. So one one of the things that I want, I'm glad you brought up the context of those years because it was such an interesting time theologically, given all those yeah. characters you mentioned. It's tough to think about somebody like Jim today and basically in just the tornado of every take is political. You know, it's all reached that political right. level. It's tough to think of someone who would be able to crank theological insights of the nature of Jim uh, of you know the biblical the theology kind today, right? But along those lines, you were you were mentioning Greg Bonson and the rest. John Frame said this in the Feast Drift, the Glory of Kings. Is that what it is? Right, right. John Frame he had an interesting note uh, about sort of how his theology trended. That he distanced himself a bit from theonomic politics and became more focused on the centrality of the church and human culture. Can you talk mm -hmm. about maybe, for someone who's that sentence would mean nothing to, you mentioned a lot of greats and especially some that were right in the middle of that theonomy pulse. And Jim right. was a part of that. And then not that he distanced himself from it in, in any sense of a beef or anything like that, but could you tell us what that sentence meant that he kind of went from there to a focus on the theology of the church and human culture? Yeah, absolutely. Jake, I, I'm fascinated by this topic. There's probably only one other human being who's as fascinated as I am. is a good <laughs> friend of mine in Pennsylvania. Uh, his name is Greg Strawbridge. And so we talk about this quite a bit. When my mentor retired, I preached his retirement here in Florida, and he gave me several original letters from the 1970s between Jim Jordan and Doug Wilson there in Moscow, Idaho, and various others. It's amazing to realize that there was actually a time when human beings had the disagreements and they disagreed with one another in a very substantial way, but yet exchanged very cordial letters. And I have some of those letters with me. Fascinating time. If you didn't have those letters, I don't think I could believe you, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> they do, trust me. Um, one of the things that happened in those days is like any movement, it, it undergoes highs and lows in its history. And in the 1970s and even the early 80s, in a little city that's really unknown, with the exception of this controversy, in Tyler, Texas, there was 
a group of men very committed to this principle of Christian reconstruction. That is, that we are to reconstruct society not on the basis of natural law, not on the basis of any other theory out there, but reconstruct society on the basis of the biblical authority, the biblical text. In particular, looking at how Moses orchestrated and established a society in the days of Israel, but also, of course, making proper adjustments. We don't live in an agrarian society and so on. And in those days, there were a lot of uh, well-known characters, which is usually when you, in these movements, you have uh, a lot of guys, big personalities. And big personalities can do the work that's needed to pioneer certain things, but eventually they kind of go their separate ways. And this is what happened. Uh, a man by the name of R.J. Rushdoony and James Jordan, these were two great characters, protagonists in the history of theonomy and Christian Reconstructionism. They had different agenda for how the movement was to proceed. Uh, R.J. Rushdoony had a particular concern with the political environment and how the law of God was to be applied to the political environment. And he played a gigantic role in the moral majority of Jerry Falwell and some of those guys. It's really a great history. There is a, a biography of Rush Dooney by um, Michael McVicker that deals with that. Jim Jordan, that is, had always a concern for the political dimensions um, and the application of the law of God to society. But what we was beginning to see was that if society was going to be transformed in any substantive way by the claims of Jesus as king, the institution that needed to make headway in that regard was the church, not primarily the biological family, nor primarily the, the state, but the church. And so that led Jim to think a lot of assumptions that evangelicals in those days, even in the Reformed church, had about the role of the church, specifically the structure, the liturgy, essentially how the church worshipped. And that was the beginning, at the genesis of a kind of separation between Reconstructionists that wanted to focus on the change of the, the world through the lens of politics and Reconstructionists who wanted to focus on the change of the world through the labors of the church. And Jim took that very high ecclesiastical road, went one direction, Rush Dooney and others went another direction. And um, one of the things we see now in our days is the fruit of a lot of those distinctions and the new generation of disciples of Reconstructionism, which has gone through, has morphed into various things. But that was the initial, Jake, uh, the initial uh, bifurcation of those two theories. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit? I know of a few listeners who are in North Texas, where Tyler, Texas is not that far, and they would never have thought that you know, Tyler, Texas was actually this center for that movement. Can you talk a little bit yeah. about Tyler, Texas well, and the role it played? Absolutely. There was a time in the 1980s where you, there was actually some national attention given to Tyler, Texas, and they sent reporters there to do some interviews. Tyler, Texas was kind of the place where the Reconstructionists attempted to implement their ideas at a very early stage. And so they had a Christian school, they had a church, they had uh, a publishing company, the Institute of Christian Economics, the ICE, and a lot of ongoing things, some form of seminary training in the early days, uh, the Geneva School, a lot, and a very prolific 
and this may be a little bit uh, unique for our listeners, but a very prolific cassette tape ministry <laughs> that went all over the world, man. It was unbelievable. And many of these things was just Jim sitting on his desk and recording these and then sending it out um, all over the world through his, um, through his labors. And so in those days, there was a lot of things going on, which obviously drew a lot of voices, a lot of big personalities, uh, conferences, affected tremendously the homeschool movement, the classical school movement, the Christian school movement. And so there was a lot of action taking place, a lot of very productive people like Gary North, who, uh, from what I understand, didn't know how to type well, but was able to accomplish more in his little uh, keyboard than most of can do in a lifetime. He was able to, at times, uh, there's a story, Jake, and I have a lot of these little anecdotal stories. When David Chilton was going to debate uh, Ron Sider on the issue of economics, and Ron had written this book called Against the, the Principle of Capitalism. And Gary Dolan told David Chilton to write a book in three months before the debate happened. So that when he showed up at the debate, David could say, here you go, Ron, here's my 300-page book in response to your theories. That kind of stuff happened a lot. These men were prolific writers, prolific communicators. They produced so much material. And it was just a very fruitful phase of the history of Christian Reconstructionism. And so that's a little bit of the context of what was taking place in Tyler, Texas. Yeah, and not, not to mention that I feel like the tangential relations. Uh, I know that Gary North, I saw this on, it may have been from American Vision YouTube a couple of years ago. There was an anniversary of a debate that Gary North, I believe it was Gary North, Gary DeMar, and Peter Lightheart went to, was it DTS, right at, in the 80s? And I think it was 1988, right when everybody thought, you know, 88 reasons that the world will end in 1988. Right. right. And uh, it was crazy to me to see how many folks who, uh, for folks listening, if they're a part of this sort of theological world, when you said David Chilton, that meant something to them. David Chilton's written some phenomenal biblical theology books, but all of these guys, you know, were just running around debating folks back in the day and being productive, like you mentioned. Yeah, it was a, a very fruitful season, and um, there was no waste of time. I mean, these men, they had uh, their children, their wives, and then throughout their work days. And then at night, at three o'clock in the morning, they would just find time to write and to produce and to respond to material. Again, it was a very interesting stage of theological history when there was just a lot of interest in the Old Testament in particular. And the reason this interest emerged to such an extent was in, by and large due to the Reconstructionist emphasis on taking the law of God seriously. So moving now into maybe a little bit about him in particular, as we've established kind of like, what is the world that he lives in? Another thing that John Frame mentioned that I thought was very interesting is that he worked through new insights, new ideas about the Bible very quickly, whereas most theologians in the mainstream will submit to a journal and then they wait a year to maybe write a follow-up. He was sort of outside of that mainstream and worked super fast. Can you talk a little bit about maybe, it sounds like that world was so big and so popular, but still not necessarily mainstream evangelical. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, that was a very difficult phase because, uh, you know, one of the goals, if you're writing something or doing some kind of project that is uh, not going to be mainstream, one of the things you need to do is you got to popularize that work. And they were publishing a lot of books, a lot of essays, but for their own journals, you know, right? there's a lot of self-publishing taking place. Jim's work with uh, John Frame, who is a very mainline sort of reform thinker, really opened a lot of doors. And John Frame, in many ways, um, he was my mentor. He was my professor at RTS. Oh, wow. So I have a, one of my deepest appreciations. spent four years with him and just a great delight. But John Frame opened the doors in so many ways for the popularization of various voices within the Reconstructionist movement. Among them, R.J. Rushduni and Jim Jordan. And, and also, of course, for um, Greg Bonson, with a different uh, situation altogether. But those are important voices in this conversation here. And so it, that allowed the people like Greg, for example, Greg Bonson to go to ETS and have debates on theonomy. That allowed Jim's work to be peer reviewed by what we call professional theologians in the institution. That allowed Rush Dooney to do lectures at RTS Jackson. And so John Frame is in some ways the voice that opened up a lot of um, our guys, and let's put it this way, the guys that I've respected over the years, uh, allowed their voices to be known in the, in the main line. Now, that said, we're still in some ways outliers. I mean, I, I remember a chapel service where John Frame was uh, speaking in RTS, and he said, listen, the professors at Harvard have not spent one millisecond thinking through what's happening here at Reformed Theological Seminary. And that's it's an interesting point because... Part of our appeal is not to minister to the academicians and far, far away lands. Part of our appeal is to make the laity take the Bible seriously. And so there was a lot of attempt early on to make the work of Reconstructionism. And um, another voice is, again, uh, Vern Poitras mm. did some review for that. And so we have been kind of the um, working like Bonhoeffer's underground seminary, you know, <laughs> just preparing men, training men, doing the work, starting new generations, uh, homeschooling, teaching them in, in Christian schools. And in profound ways, the work of the Reconstructions in the 70s and 80s was to prepare a generation of students and pastors, of which I am one of them to take over, take that mantle and continue the work that they started long ago when this stuff wasn't considered, wasn't even on the radar. But now there's not a work that goes by in even mainstream evangelicalism, especially in the Twitter world, that has not been influenced by people like Peter Lightheart or Jim Jordan or uh, Van Til. And so, in other words, this is a generational effort. And at this stage of history in 2020, we're beginning to see the fruit of stuff that happened 40 years ago. Can we talk about now the sort of, uh, what is the nature of, of Jim's work? So if somebody were to get, uh, or as we've been talking about, he had these fresh new insights, new ideas about the Bible, like what? Like what kind of things was he looking at? Jim was, is, I mean, we can talk about this. In some ways it feels like Jim has, he, he is such a, remarkable and prophetic figure that it almost seems like we're talking about someone who lived 300 years ago. <laughs> but uh, he's living in Texas. Uh, God has uh, preserved him. He's had some strokes, some health issues that hinders him from continuing his academic work, but he's still doing a little bit of work on the side, and we're grateful for his life. But Jim took the Bible at its word. One of the quotes that he has that my congregation is probably tired of hearing from me is, um, 
that the Holy Spirit doesn't waste his breath. And so what Jim said was that many evangelicals look at the Bible and they see it as a record of a record of history. And Jim said, no, no, we need to take the Bible as a revelation from God, and we need to take the Bible at its worth. And we need to consider the text in all its richness, in all its symbolic structure. We need to consider the text in all its creational organization. And what he did essentially is he said, look, here is Genesis 1 and 2. Here's the creation narrative. And typically, a standard evangelical interpreter or exegete will say, look, here's Genesis 1 and 2. Here's the story of creation. Here's what it means. Here's how it contributes to the discussions on the creation debate. Now, let's move on to the fall. And Jim said, hang on a second. Genesis 1 and 2 is essentially not just a narrative, the chronology of creation in that first week, but it is also a model for how we are to interpret the rest of the Bible, so that Genesis 1 and 2, the details of those texts actually teaches us how to interpret the rest of the scriptures. And so when you look at Genesis 1 and day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6, Moses, as he continues in the Pentateuch, is not just saying, well, that there was a nice piece of scientific inquiry. Let's leave that aside. Moses is constantly going back to Genesis 1 and 2 to frame his understanding of the Exodus, to frame his understanding of the wilderness wanderings of the people of God, the desire to conquer the promised land. And all of that goes back to those initial chapters. So Jim was the kind of guy who said, look, as we look to the scriptures, Genesis 1 and 2 forms that. And what other people are doing is they're entering the exegetical work like scientists. And scientists dissect a text and move on. But the biblical interpreter looks at a text and goes back again and again. And the more he reads the Bible, the more he finds beauty in the stars, the gemstones, the lions, the lambs, the fish, the trees, the thorns. And that those creational details actually function as interpretive keys as you read the rest of scriptures. And then just real briefly, that idea itself, that concept was actually coined by uh, David Chilton, his commentary Revelation is referred to as interpretive maximalism, which uh, received a lot of criticism, <laughs> but essentially meant that I can imagine when so. we look at the text, yeah, you can, you can yeah. imagine, right? And the point of it was that when we look at the text, a lot of the scholars are just saying, what is the, the minimal meaning we get out of this text. And Jim was saying early on, no, no, what is the maximum that we can get out of this text? Which meant for him that the task of understanding a Bible passage doesn't end when somebody writes a commentary on it. It's an ongoing task and we're constantly learning from that well that never ends. Right. And finding out all that that author had to say to you in that text. Exactly. Um, one thing it struck me is I was even just perusing through new eyes and yes. how much of it is essentially you not just flying over things like stars, you not flying over things like trees, that the Bible has a language, a grammar. And when you think of that, it should mean something to you. I just actually had a conversation with Peter Kraft last week about Lewis and cosmology. And we talked about how mm. 
for example, if you remember the, I think Gravity came out in 2015 with Sandra Bullock and how terrifying yeah. it is out there. You know, it, the idea that you could get, you know, your hose gets unattached to the spaceship and just the terror of being out there and quiet. That's not the way the Bible talks about the heavens, and it's not the way even folks in church history would consider it up there. That's ex- that's exactly right. And uh, part of part of the conversation is we tend, um, and I, I've been in the ac- academic world for a long time. I'm working on my doctorate now, so I, my children have never seen me <laughs> not in the academic world, and I hope one day they do. But a part of the conversation stems from the fact that for a lot of interpreters, when they look at these these creational symbols. They look at it only from a very concrete perspective, but the Bible takes the symbol and there's the reality of the symbol, but the Bible also is much richer than that. It takes the symbol and it applies to other kinds of events. And so we consider that these things are heavenly grammar, heavenly language, and we like to leave it up there. You know, in some kind of abstract world, yeah, they take these heavenly words, this heavenly vocabulary, and they say, how can this be applied to the political situation happening in Babylon or in Assyria or in Israel, in the north or southern kingdom? And then they begin to do that. They begin to take that heavenly language and apply it to earthly scenarios. And so if God is flying in the clouds in Isaiah and he's coming down. We don't look at that and say, oh, well, that is kind of a funny image. We look at it as interpreters and say, well, no, this is how the prophetic writers uh, were speaking of judgment. When God is riding on the clouds, that is not good news for the enemies of Yahweh. And so that's at least a, a simple example of how that functions, that we take the heavenly language that the Bible uses. And for a lot of interpreters, we want to leave it far, far away from the earthly reality. But the biblical writers are very comfortable in taking language like uh, the heavens and the stars and applying it to very distinct earthly events. Yuri, I'm curious, as you mentioned, you are a pastor. You're also in the academic world and have been very influenced by the writings of Jim Jordan. What for you was something that was a fresh insight that's just that, you, that has never been lost on you? What's something that's just stuck with you ever since? All right, all right. I got several stories here. I just I'll give you one. All right, okay, Jake. Sounds good. I was I was uh, doing a, a research paper in Genesis one and two. My professor at RTS wanted me to do some research, and so I was perusing through the RTS Orlando Library, which is the largest theological library in Florida. It's it's a it's my home away from home. I've loved that place for years. I still do. And I was perusing through that library, and I went through the creation section. And I found this book, and it was called, I think it was called A Traditional Defense of the Calendar View. Uh, I think it was called, the title was Creation in Six Days. And it was written by this obscure figure that I had heard in the past, but had just not followed, followed up, James B. Jordan. And I said, well, that looks interesting. I picked it up, and I read the entire book in about four to five hours. And then there was this chapter in the midst of this conversation about creation, interpretation, his critique of Meredith Klein, and all this kind of very technical stuff. And there was this chapter on Gnosticism. And I remember underlining, putting stars, and I thought to myself afterwards when I read that chapter on Gnosticism in Creation Six Days by James B. Jordan, 
I said, I would never be the same again. And essentially what he says in that chapter is that the evangelical world has learned to be very dualistic in the way they look at things. They have learned to think of piety only as an exercise in privatized religion. And Jim said there's something magnificent and mysterious happening when we consider creation, when we consider the materiality of creation, that God is not a God who is just merely transcendent. He's imminent. He's near to us, that he speaks to us through his creation, that our worship is one way we express our humanity. And in some ways, that chapter of Gnosticism has shaped everything I do in my life. And it's that boogeyman that I I love to come back to and beat up again and again and again. (laughs) Because uh, for for Jim, and now for me, as somebody who, as a side note, I worked with Jim for three years here in Pensacola. And so, but for, for Jim, and now continuing with my work as a pastor, Gnosticism has become this great threat that we have swallowed willingly and evangelicals have found the taste to be really really savory and uh, i'm still and i'll i'll be continuing to let the, the evangelical world know the evangelical world which i'm a part of that you should not have tasted gnosticism and enjoyed it you should have despised it and spat it out and uh, that little chapter in creation six days continues to have an effect on me in fact just about every six months to seven months I go back and just take um, a little phrase or two just to remind myself of how influenced I was by that work. That was genuine, and I appreciate it because uh, Creation in Six Days is a Canon Press title, so I appreciate that one. Oh, lovely. I forgot about that. Well, mighty cheers. I also remember my, I read, uh, I believe it's Vindication of Jesus Christ or the Son of Man. Yes. I forget which. Yes. I, I read that at a Baptist Bible college and I felt like, man, theologically, I'm running around with my hat backwards and uh, <laughs> just finding the next, you know, mailbox to hit because uh, it yeah. was a ride. So I'm going to let you go here. But one last question for folks who have been listening. What do you think is the central gift that the writings of Jim Jordan have for someone who's been just influenced by general evangelicalism today? Well, that, that's a great question. And um, the good news is that even though Jim may be elderly, his health is declining for sure. That work has continued. And I think what Jim has taught me and that I really hope evangelicalism will learn is that the solution to our problems is not in foreign theories about how to structure society, but it's always in the text of the Bible. And you ought never to be bored by it. And I think what Jim's interpretation of the scriptures does as he works meticulously through the text, you see this in his Judge's commentary, his Daniel commentary, and everything he does is that he allows the text to speak for itself. And you never feel that you're forced to bring outside content into the Bible. You always have this existential sense when you're reading the scriptures through this lens that the Bible is sufficient, that it is not only inerrant, but it breathes its own hermeneutic, it breathes its own way of interpreting. And so what it does is it gives you a greater courage and boldness to look at the scriptures anew, to not be embarrassed by those, you know, supposed contradictions that skeptics throw at you all the time. 
but actually to feel an enormous amount of confidence that what the text says is actually breathed by the Spirit of God, and therefore our confidence can take us from Genesis to Revelation without blinking. We can be absolutely sure that this is God-inspired, and the more you read it, especially as you read it alongside with books like Through New Eyes, you realize that the Spirit doesn't waste his breath, and that perhaps you ought to spend just a little more time in looking at what stars and mountains mean in the Bible before you move to verse 2. And I think that will be the value of Jim's work, uh, not only now, but in generations to come. I love it. Would you Would you want to start folks with Through New Eyes if, if they've never read Jim? I would start with Through New Eyes. And if you are not as much interested in uh, the reading process, you can always go to uh, wordmp3.com, wordmp3.com, where you'll have virtually everything Jim has done in terms of audio ministry from his uh, early 30s all the way to his 60s. And um, I think those are two places. And of course, the continuing academic institution today that has, you know, it's continued that labor that Jim began is the Theopolis Institute. And you can visit there at theopolisinstitute.com. The president, Peter Lightheart, who is a disciple of Jim, has continued that work. I'm a, a very proud member of the Theopolis Institute. I think they're doing a wonderful work in reordering our desires and allowing us to speak truthfully from a biblical perspective in all matters of life. Amen. Well, uh, as you mentioned, Jim is back in Texas. His health, uh, he went through a, a stroke and everything else, it would have been an honor to have interviewed him as he's influenced me a ton, and I'm super grateful yeah. for his work, and it was my goal that uh, we, we have somebody on who can you know, introduce us to him and his work, and so Yuri, thank you so much for, for doing us that honor. I hope to have you back on. We should have you back and chat about whatever you'd like to. Uh, Jake, man, it would be my absolute pleasure. Real, real joy getting to know you, my brother. Appreciate you. Thank you so much. 